Here's your host, Alex Garrett. All right, well, I, I think I'm about to throw an endorsement into the ring for Comptroller. And by the way, running for Comptroller in my neighborhood is David Weprin. But you know, I'm tired of the establishment and I'm tired of the career politicians. So who do I turn to? Someone who's a real outsider, but he's an entrepreneur. He's a veteran. We met him at the Memorial Day ceremony at the Intrepid, Zach Iskell. Uh, I think we were, you know, it's faded. We met. So, so thanks for joining us. And you are running for Comptroller in the Democratic primary, which, by the way, starts today with early voting. I am. And Alex, thank you so much for having me on. It was so great to meet you uh, aboard the Intrepid on Memorial Day. Uh, I'm a huge fan, and uh, it means so much to have you uh, having me on the show. Thank you. Well, I listened to you at the debate on Wednesday night. For those who missed it, it was on radio, it was on streaming. And uh, I thought, man, he's getting, you know, he, he, he gets it. You know, he's someone that is, is in the streets, literally. He's out there working hard, right, Zach? So let's tell us about your story and, and why you're running for Comptroller. Yeah. Um, so first off, thanks for watching the debates. I wish everybody watched the debate. We've had two debates so far this past week. One was uh, WABC uh, radio. It is up on YouTube. And then they scheduled, CBS scheduled a mayoral debate at the same time that New York One was doing the Comptroller's debate. So I do hope people tune in and, and watch those debates. Uh, so my my story, um, my family has always served this city in one capacity or another. My grandfather worked for the Department of Sanitation. My mom taught at PS 145 in Harlem and was one of the only uh, white public school teachers to support her black students and colleagues during the 1968 teacher strike, which was a sort of infamous teacher strike in the late 1960s around segregation. Um, and I've been a public servant now for two decades. My public service started in the Marine Corps. I led troops during some of the heaviest combat of the Iraq war. I spent the last 10 years building businesses, uh, serving in a number of capacities. And I also built a nonprofit called the Headstrong Project that is now one of the leading and largest providers of mental health for veterans in the U.S. So when I came home from Iraq, uh, I'm very, very proud. I've never left anyone behind um, in or out of combat. But when I came home, we abandoned our translators. I fought to help bring them over here. I began to lose more of my Marines to suicide than I did in combat. I built a nonprofit called the Headstrong Project. It's now one of the leading providers of mental health in the United States. We take care of 800 to 1,000 veterans every week. And, um, uh, and most recently, I served as a deputy director at Javits Medical Center. I went there at the height of COVID uh, as a volunteer. A few days later, became the deputy director, uh, helping turn Javits into one of the only successful COVID field hospitals in the country. But the reason I'm running is, is fairly simple. You know, like yourself, I am frustrated. You know, we live in a city that spends more than the next 15 or 20 largest U.S. cities combined. It's an almost $30 billion a year increase from when de Blasio first took office. $30 billion could have made public transportation free, uh, made public transportation accessible. It could have gotten universal broadband. We could have gotten smaller class sizes instead of larger. We could have ended homelessness. Uh, instead, we have more homeless. I mean, it seems like everywhere you look, uh, this city has the resources to be doing better for the people that live here, and yet those resources aren't going where they're needed. And I'm running for comptroller because the job of comptroller is to make sure that that doesn't happen anymore and to make sure the city's uh, doing its job. All right, so you're going up some against some titans. Let me just list them. You know, City Council Speaker Corey Johnson. We've got uh, Michelle Caruso-Cabrera. I mean, there are some titans. So how do you stand out? How do you want to stand out to the voting uh, public right now? 
Yeah. So I think, you know, I, um, you know, a lot of times people ask you like, are you progressive? Are you moderate? I think of myself in, in my own lane. Uh, the vast major, uh, the majority of voters for comptroller are undecided. Uh, I happen to think actually most voters, even the mayoral race are also undecided, um, or loosely tied to two candidates. And so for us, it's it's about making the case that I have the broad leadership and management ex- uh, abilities, that this is a job that is not a legislative job. It's a manager's job. I think I'm the only one in the field that's managed anything of the size and scope of the controller's office, um, but also the vision for the office, which is essentially making sure the city is doing its job and also using the office. So we think of it as, as um, you know, one of the big powers of the, the, the comptroller's office is, is auditing city agencies. And I have a vision of taking that audit function into the 21st century of instead of just auditing a specific agent a agency, really looking at what the problem is the city's trying to solve and then auditing the city's response to that. You know, we know most of the problems that the city's facing are deeply interconnected. Um, you know, you name the issue, whether it's it's homelessness, right? That's about housing as much as it is about jobs, about mental health, about a host of other issues. And Zach, on the housing, uh, the front, fact, would, yep. on the housing yeah. front, let's say someone falsifies records for NYCHA. Does the Comptroller's Office not allow that to happen? Like, can you guys have a say on what records get sent, you know, for verification and whatnot as part of the auditing process? Yeah. So, so the the comptroller has uh, in the auditing processes two uh, very significant powers. One is um, is the power of subpoena. So you can sub- subpoena all agencies for all records, even confidential records. Uh, and number two, uh, you can uh, compel people to testify under oath. And so, you know, the the if if you identify fraud or corruption or things that are illegal. Uh, you can identify that through the subpoena or through compelling people to testify under oath. It would then have to be referred to criminal proceedings. Um, you know, so the, the powers of the office are limited. Um, but I think that there is a real opportunity also to use the office in partnership with the mayor and the city council to really show what is and is not working in solving specific problems that New Yorkers are facing. Now, when, um, you, say, when you say that, though, I question like, is the job of the comptroller also to keep the mayor accountable? I always thought that was the role of the comptroller as well. And I don't know if Stringer did a good job of that. Yeah, I think it, it is. It is. And I think that a lot of how I will be in that role will be based on who the mayor is and what my relationship is with, like with him. If it was this mayor that I was a comptroller for, it would be more of a probably adversarial relationship. Um you know, I would not have uh, um, uh, had. I would not have have been okay with the massive increase in spending, uh, the deficits that this that this mayor is leaving us us with, and the fact that we have not accomplished anything with these dollars. I think with the next mayor, my hope is is to really be the person that is showing them the math of what is and isn't working where we should be divesting and where we should be investing in order to solve real problems that New Yorkers are facing. You know, you talk about the whole idea that you, the whole job you had as a volunteer at the Javits Center and, and you were out there during the pandemic. I don't know if you want to go on the attack here or feel free. Were your competition out there in the pandemic fighting as much as you were to, to fight this thing? Did, did you see that? Did you feel that they were around as much as you have been? 
You know, I don't know. Um, you know, there are, I think some of them, um, no, look, I, I think at the end of the day, our city's leadership failed us over the last year. I think that's very clear. And I think if you look at the number of New Yorkers that we lost to COVID, uh, if you look at the economic impact of COVID, uh, New York City fared worse than almost any other city in the United States. And there are some systemic reasons for that. But at the same time, this is a city that should have been better prepared to keep New Yorkers safe. And we failed. And most of the people, many of the people I am running against bear responsibility for that. As to where some of the folks I'm running against who are not in city government where they were, I, I don't know. Um, I knew where I was. Um, I was on the front lines, and I was trying to help as many people as I possibly could. And look at Javits. I mean, Javits was put to use really well. I mean, I think there could have been more people there instead of the nursing home. That's just a personal aside. But as controller, though, you know, now he's running for for mayor, and not that you're, you know, I don't know if he's going to win. However, for you, do you focus on that? Do you focus on what government, the state government did as well? Is that a focus? Like, yeah, this could have been done better at the state level also. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it, it's, it's interesting because I think it's, look, I, you know, my, um, you know, I look at, uh, somebody like general Stanley McChrystal. So Stan McChrystal, um, for the audience that's not familiar with him, was a, is a retired Army general. But in 2005, he took the reins of the United States' Special Operations Command and, and the Joint Special Operations Command. So he was responsible at that point in time for our special operations in Iraq. And what he realized is we had a very siloed approach to how we were operating overseas. And he created a team-of-team team model of getting multiple agencies and multiple unit units, support units, intelligence units, uh, you know, uh, uh, direct action units to start working together on the ground level as opposed to being siloed and only working together at the strategic level. And th that led to radical improvements in, the, in our tactical abilities on the ground and our strategic abilities. I think what we need to do is we need to start taking that holistic approach and applying it to city governance. And, you know, if you imagine like there is a, you know, you sort of mean, if you look at like the education um, gap in our, in our city schools, it's like eight out of 10 kids, seven out of 10 kids are not reading at grade level by eighth grade. They're not doing math at grade level by eighth grade. So when we think about how we solve that problem, part of it is about class sizes. Part of it is about quality of instruction. But we know that there's a host of other issues that are also drivers of that, right? There's a public safety component. There's a domestic component. There's a mental health component. There's a uh, shelter insecurity and a food insecurity and a technology insecurity component. There are agencies within the city that have the resources to address each of those specific issues or work towards addressing each of those issues, but they're not working together on the ground where the rubber meets the road and we're actually able to impact a child's life. And so I think what the controller can do is start to audit really how do we solve that problem and how is the city solving this problem of getting kids to read at grade level? What's working around the country? What's working in the city? What's not working? How can we be doing a better job and actually showing the math on that and then going to the mayor and going to the city council and saying, this is what right looks like. This is what is working, what isn't working. And hopefully they bite. And if they bite, you've got a great partnership. If they don't bite, um, 
you know, that leads to, I think, then a very different, more adversarial relationship to, to get them to do the right thing. Well, let's talk about, aside from government agencies, you're an entrepreneur, yeah. you're running a business. Can you get the private sector more involved? I mean, I don't know. I don't see the controller ever really getting the private sector more involved. Is that accurate? I am so happy you asked that question because uh, bottom line is, yes, we need to. Um, 100%. You know, it's like, and it's, it's and, and I'm glad, you know, the reason I, I went down that that path is because you were asking about Javits. Um you know, part of these problems, there's a role for the state government and the federal government to also play. And there's 100% a role for nonprofits and the private sector to play as well. And I think the next mayor, the next administration is going to have to rely on working with the private sector to solve problems as well, just because of the limited resources, the deficit that they're going to be inheriting from this current mayor. I mean, he signed off, what, on a $90 billion budget? I mean, why, why, why is the controller signing off on that? Doesn't he have the power to say, let's look at this again, Mr. Mayor? So it's, it's a 90 the, – the mayor just proposed a $98 billion executive budget, which is massive. And part of it is fueled by the federal bailout that, that Chuck Schumer got us, which is great. But the problem is, is what the city is doing is spending money in a way that actually increases the city's deficit. Because once those funds run out, they have invested those funds in programs that require continued funding. And so um, the $15 billion that we're getting, we're going to need $15 billion down the road because it's, it's, it's continuous programming. And we don't know where they're going to get that. So the next mayor is inheriting a $15 billion deficit over the first three years of the administration. And that assumes that we get 400,000 people back to work. It assumes that uh, tax revenues from real estate remain stable. They're not. They're down over a billion dollars. It assumes we find a billion dollars in undisclosed labor savings in the city workforce. Uh, it assumes that, that tax revenues from Wall Street bonuses remain stable. Those are all very rosy projections, and so it is going to be very painful. It's likely going to have to result in cuts to city services that will impact the most vulnerable and possibly tax increases, not just on the wealthy, but on the middle class, um, because we have to find $5 billion additional dollars a year uh, to solve that, that budget deficit. And I, don't, I don't know where else it's going to come from. You know, as you're mentioning about coming back to work, Personally, I think the vaccine is, is needed, but at the same time, I think they're focusing on that so much that they're forgetting to tell people to come back. So as you're running this, are you encouraging people, yes, you can come back to the city. We're, we're getting there. We've got to make such an effort to get people back to, back to the city and back into the office. There was a study that was just done by the Partnership for New York City that estimated uh, after Labor Day about 60% of uh, – New York office workers will return to the office 60% and that the majority of them will only return three days out of the week. So if you have 50% of people returning to the office 60% of the time, that is a, that means you've got almost a two thirds reduction in travel back to the office on a weekly basis. That is catastrophic, right? Because that, that means subway ridership is down. That affects the MTA solvency. Uh, that means there's fewer people going to local businesses in Midtown or in sort of office areas. That affects local economies. That affects the boroughs, right, where a lot of people rely on jobs in, in Manhattan 
um, people-owned businesses uh, that that rely on that. And so it's a um, it's a um, uh, sorry, my kids just got home. Um, it's all good. It's all good. Look, this so is what a... you're, you're doing. You're being a dad. You're doing. No, this is perfect. So I actually asked your team, yeah. "Are you on the campaign trail?" And I think that trail from home says everything about you that you're you're still willing to be the family man while you're running. I think that needs to be stated right now. By the way, your dog is barking mad, and I like that. <laughs> yeah, the dogs. We have three rescue dogs who got very excited that the kids are coming home. And um, my, uh, I will say, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. One of the things I always try and point out is, um, you know, there's, there's probably, I think, maybe 800 or 1,000 people running for office in the city right now because there's, you know, 37 out of 51 open city council seats. You've got a new mayor, a new controller, borough presidents, different DA races, judges, um, and it's hard running for office. It's, it's a lot of work, um, but we often don't talk about um, the impact it has on families and that there are a lot of, you know, spouses and kids who are supporting candidates around the city. And it's, um, it's hard. And I'm very fortunate that my wife uh, has really stepped up to play. I do my best to help out in the mornings. I do my best to get home and do story time at night. Um, How old are the is, kids? Uh, if you don't mind me asking. Yeah, so I've got a I've got a 15 year old stepdaughter um, who's perfect, um, and uh, and then we've got three little ones, uh, a seven year old, a almost six year old, and a two year old. And the problem with the three younger ones is uh, they're not as perfect as my 15 year old stepdaughter. And there's <laughs> there's only one variable, which is my genes. So um, you know, <laughs> we'll we'll see how they turn out. They're, I think my wife's genes is, is more than making up for it, but uh, you know we um, they're they're still all really good kids. All right, well a lot of people are on the campaign trail, so let's let's shift to how your business is going because I know you probably personally were affected by COVID through your in your business, and yet you're still running it. You're still running from control. No, I actually, that? so I actually sold my businesses uh, last fall um, as I made the decision to uh, to run for office. Um, so I, I decided, um, you know, I've been in business and nonprofits now for almost a decade. And um, even before COVID, I was sort of thinking that it was sort of time for the next chapter of my life. And, um, you know, this, I sort of added a bookend on it and, and sold my businesses uh, last fall um, as I, you know, was decided to run for office. And then, you know, I knew that I was taking on some risk that, you know, if sure. I didn't win. Um, but I think at the same time, I will, um, I am looking to serve New York and New Yorkers in some capacity, win or lose. Um, well, and so if I win, it'll be in the office. If I don't win, uh, I will find another way of serving this city. Well, you definitely seem connected, but I know your goal is to win this or you wouldn't be running. So, this debate on yeah. Wednesday night, though, I've got to say, started to become an, a, a sort of a match. And this is the thing about debates that maybe you can chime in on here. Well, why do they become so contested instead of dealing with the issues? Like, why does it have to always be a show, Zach? I love that question. Um, you know, I think it's because that's what people pay attention to, unfortunately. You know, I tried to make this point. There was two candidates that were going at it. Um, on the stage and that's where all the attention is and they get more time um, and that's the way the game is played 
And, you know, there are those of us that are trying to focus on the issues, trying to talk about policies, trying to talk about things of substance. And, you know, I think we are a victim of our politics. We have a political system where um, things become very fractured uh, and politicians have a lot to gain by fighting with each other because it draws attention to them. Uh, it makes people think that they're fighting for them. And in fact, they're not. Uh, what they're actually doing is um, uh, generating support, but they're not actually accomplishing anything, anything that helps anybody. To actually accomplish things, they need to learn to work together and they need to solve problems together. And, you know, one of the reasons I'm running is, you know, I want to change that. When I was at Javits Medical Center, one of the hardest things we had to do was dealing with the politics outside the building. And it, this sounds... This sounds uh, almost absurd, but the, it was easy to build a COVID hospital in five days because we had amazing engineers and contractors who were working with us. It was easy to treat COVID patients because of the quality of our doctors and our nurses and our paramedics. The hardest thing we had to deal with was the politics between the governor, the mayor, and the president, that our politicians had more to gain by having a failure and having something that they could blame each other for because that gives them a political win rather than sharing in each other's success. And, you know, we were able to successfully get 28 federal, state, and city agencies to work together, um, but it certainly wasn't easy. And, um, and, uh, and I think to me that spoke to the fact that we really need a new type of politics in, in, in our country. Well, and that's why you're running. I think that I could sense what fueled you is that is that trifecta of just yeah. complete chaos, and it was just, it was disaster. And you know, we were all as New Yorkers individually proud that the Javits Center got up and running. That UNSO, USNS Hope came in the water, but I didn't sense anybody in politics was proud of it. They just wanted to make a political point about it. Well, there was at first it was a disaster. Um, and um, and then they tried to use it as opposed to figuring out how to fix it and how to make it work. They ended up just trying to find ways of um, of using it for political advantage as to who was to blame. And meanwhile, in the building, we were able to get 28 federal state agencies to work together. And we did turn Javits around and it did become a success. And it is a story that isn't told. We treated we represented 1.5 percent of all hospital beds in New York City. And we treated 3% of all COVID patients. Um, and we treated a lot of people. I mean, there was, you know, at our height, we had 500, 550 patients, I think. There maybe around 500. Zach, I'm, um, so, I'm so glad you're talking about this because I felt like the media showed nothing in the Javits Center. Is that, was it, did you find no, that? No, and, well? and 500. Yeah, so when, and when you think about 500, right, they initially set it up and they said this is going to have thousands and thousands of beds. Um, a 500-bed hospital made us, I think one of the, there's 50 something hospitals in New York City. A 500 bed hospital made us one of the top 10 largest hospitals in the city. Um, I mean, a, a 500 bed hospital is a significant operation. And so when it was initially set up, um, and this is the part of the story that hasn't been told, uh, it, was, it was built using something called uh, an FMS, a federal medical shelter, which is a FEMA construct. It's basically FEMA has these federal medical shelters that come in a trailer, and they are 500-bed facilities that are used um, for natural disasters, hurricane, earthquakes, where people can come and get shelter. 
they are not hospitals. There's no real medical capabilities. There's no pharmacy other than being able to dispense Advil and Tylenol. There's no doctors. You walk into a hospital room, all the equipment that's in there, none of that exists in a federal medical shelter. And so they set up a 2,000-bed federal medical shelter, but there's no capabilities to actually treat anybody in an FMS. Um, and so you know, if you don't have the capabilities to treat people, you're not going to treat people. So then as uh, um, things got worse and worse in the city, I got there uh, towards the end of March. I think it was March 27th. Um, and a few days later, we set to work. Um, increasing our capabilities to be able to actually treat COVID patients. Um, and that's when we ended up building an actual COVID hospital with things like oxygen, pulse oximetry, and everything else we needed in five days. Zach, did you feel your leadership on the battlefield really kick in during that time? And I, I don't know if you want to answer this or not, but did you kind of get any flashbacks of being in that sort of infirmary environment where, yeah, you were so, serving ba uh, soldiers on the battlefield? Right in, right in Jabotin. Yeah, so it it meant something to be able to for me to be able to go to war to save people's lives as opposed to going to war to do what you normally do at war. That meant something to me. Um, and I was in an environment I was familiar with, right? We had a lot of military units there, a lot of different agencies. <clears throat> I am familiar in working in that type of environment, so I felt very much at home in that sense. Um, and also, this is my city that was being affected, so it was deeply personal. Um, but it did feel like every day for me, it just it was such an honor to walk into that building every day. It was such an honor to work with with people who, you know, to be honest, like you think about what what the world was like in April and May of last year in terms of COVID. We had no idea what was driving this disease. <clears throat> we had no idea. Um, um, you know, there's very little that we knew about it. And, and you're working with people who are, who are putting their lives on the line every day um, in a highly infectious environment uh, to care for other people. Um, and to be a small part of that, to have worked with that caliber of people, there was even an amazing nurse there, uh, uh, Army Lieutenant Colonel named Leslie Curtis, who became very friendly with and she actually was uh, was deployed to Fallujah the same time as I was in 2004, uh, taking care of many of my Marines. Uh, so she was part of the medical unit that was taking care of our wounded out of Fallujah. And here she was 15, 16 years later, um, taking care of New Yorkers, you know? And so uh, it was, that part of it was pretty remarkable. Well, you know, you just said, and that's, that's incredible. And I really, I, I want you to say one more time that you were, you were glad to go to war to save someone like, cause that statement in itself should win you the, the primary, to be honest with you. Cause you, you were at war uh, fighting this battle that, that many of your opponents may not have been. Yeah. I mean, that, that is literally, I mean, look, it is, it, it, it was, it was not lost to me that every day I was going to war to help save people's lives mm. and not um, what we generally go to war for. And I think, for a lot of us that were in that building who had been deployed, um, you know, over the wars of the last decade, two decades, that meant something. Did um, it also mean that politics wasn't in the building? Because I, from what I heard, when someone got their vaccination there, they said it was like family. It was like everybody was bonding together to fight this virus. Did you find that when it was a COVID hospital as well? For sure. For sure. 
I mean, I, well, let me say, there were definitely some politics in the building, especially between the city and the state and even the federal government um, and those agencies. But at the end of the day, you know, uh, what I think the, the leadership in that building tried to convey to everybody every day was, let's try and ignore the politics outside the building and let's just focus on what can we do today to help as many New Yorkers as possible. Forget the politics. Just what can we do today to help as many New Yorkers as possible? You know, exactly. is that setting up a high volume oxygen intake? Is that, you know, fixing the way that we're working with local hospitals to try and make it easier for them to send people here? Um, let's just focus on that. Zach, you just mentioned a few minutes ago you're a New York City resident. So to not get caught up in what's going on in the mayoral race with the whole resident thing, can we be sure <laughs> that you are a resident of New York City? Can we can we get that out of the way right now? Yes, I'm a, I'm a resident of New York City. Uh, my wife is a resident of New York City. I don't have a girlfriend that lives in New Jersey. I am not, um, uh, which I think is what happened with Eric Adams. I think his his partner is in New Jersey. Um, I haven't really been honestly following the story that that closely, but um, I am a resident of New York City. I live downtown with my wife, our four kids, our three rescue dogs. We're all here. ZachIscol.com, Z-A-C-H-I-S-C-O-L.com. We'll be back with more with Comptroller candidate Zach Iskol after this. Welcome back to Alex Garrett Podcasting. Zach Iskol is my guest this hour. It's the race for New York City Comptroller. He is on the Democratic primary. He's running in the primary for Comptroller. And early voting is happening right now through June 22nd. And on that note, Zach... Does early voting help your efforts here and campaign? I think it's great. I think it's great. I think it makes it easier for people to vote. I think anything that makes it easier for people to vote is better. Uh, too often, you know, if you only are able to vote in one day, um, there are people who have to work. There are people who have to take care of their families. There are people who have, you name the barrier to be able to vote only on a single day. And anything to remove those barriers and to make it easier for people to vote to make voting more accessible is a good thing. And I think it definitely helps, um, you know, to have uh, 10 days of, of voting in addition to uh, the ability to absentee ballots. I think it's, it's great. Um, I think it does help me. I think, you know, in particular for candidates that are not part of the system, the more people who are able to vote is better. Um, and hopefully that will drive higher turnout. And how much of a budget, because I got to ask this, because you're, com, you're yeah. a controller, how much of a budget are you running right now to for this campaign, if you don't mind me asking? So we've raised, um, I think, it's a good question. I think it's a little bit complicated because I don't know exactly where. So the city has matching funds, and it matches funds eight to one uh, for contributions you've received from people who live in the city up to $250. And it's not exactly clear always, like sometimes there are people who for some reason or another don't qualify for a matching contribution. And so we're still auditing some of that. Um, but it looks like we've raised, I think somewhere between 3.2 and $3.5 million, maybe 3.3, 3.5. Um, I think if we got all of our matching funds, it would be 3.5 we're still doing an assessment to figure out exactly where we are with that. And um, uh, the point is though, is that you, I think by telling your story here can inspire others that 
may not have the war chest, if you will, um, to do this, to step up for New Yorkers. I, I think there's got to be that message too. Yeah, we need more people running for office. The city has a matching funds program where, uh, you know, you have to qualify for matching funds, but it does make it easier to run. You know, the most you're allowed to spend is $4.5 million, um, but the people who contribute to anything up to $250 is matched 8 to 1 by the city, and those public funds do help lay, uh, level the playing field somewhat. Um, I think it does a tremendous amount in city council races and borough races and also in citywide races. You know, you, why do you, how do you think you've been able to attract that many people to your campaign? Because Zach Iskell, who is he? Some people might ask that, but I've started to get to know you more. But how are you able to attract even that amount of people to, to help you out here? That's pretty impressive, to be honest. Yeah. So I, I benefit from um, – I have a very strong network. You know, I ran a nonprofit for um, almost a decade in which part of my job description was knowing how to raise money. Um, and so it is a skill set that I have developed over a decade, right? Like if I don't raise money for the nonprofit, like it, people could die, right? It is, it is literally like we are providing a life-saving service in terms of mental health we provide. And so I've had to develop a skill set of knowing um, how to raise money. And, um, you know, I've, I've, I think that has been helpful. I think that the, the, in some ways, the pandemic environment, which we're sort of coming out of now, but for the majority of this race has actually been helpful um, because ironically, you're actually able to get in front of more people on a daily basis than you are offline right like if you you know there was a point in december in january and november december and january where i was doing three or four zoom meet and greets a day right like my nights were just back to back meet and greets with asking zach you aren't a people person i just realized you're not a people person at all you know Right, getting, you know, getting their friends. You know, it was, and it was like, it, it got exhausting, but like, you know, getting them to get, you know, 8, 10, 12 of their friends in a, in a Zoom. And at that time, it was kind of like, it was easy to get people to do that because like, what else are they going to be doing at night? You know, but that is so cool that you were able to, to do that was so cool that you were able to do that. And so it seems like it's carried you into this whole um, election here. I've got to ask you now, though, ranked choice voting, it, it seems complicated. It sounds complicated. What... As a candidate, how much did you have to study this to actually educate your, you know, your supporters on this? And those. Oh God, we're still we're still figuring it out. You know, I think I think in the long run, ranked choice voting is going to be great for New Yorkers and for the city. I think in the short term, I think this election it's going to be. I have no idea how it plays out, and I think part of it is voters are just not educated about how to do it. Um, I think once voters become comfortable with the process and how it works, I think it's going to be great for the city. But I'll give you an example of what I mean by them not knowing. So, like, usually, you know, let's say you uh, let's say you have a candidate who um, you really like. And, you know, let's say that you really like Jim, but you think Jim is likely not going to win. And then there's Sally and. Uh, Bob, um, 
who's the, what was the first name I gave Jim? So Jim, Jim, Sally and Bob. And so let's say you, you really like Jim, but you don't think Jim can win. So, but you think Sally's going to win and you would rather have Sally than Bob. Um, traditionally what you would do is you can only vote for one person. You'd say, okay, I can't vote for Jim because he's not going to win. I'm going to hold my nose and vote for Sally because I don't want Bob to win. And what you're seeing people do now is when they rank their voters, their, their, their candidates, they're sort of going back to that muscle memory and they're saying, okay, well, my first choice is Jim, but I don't think he can win. So I'm going to rank Sally first. Whereas what they really should be doing is voting for who they like the best first voting for who they like the second, because you can't throw out your vote in ranked choice voting. <clears throat> but I don't think most people are aware of that or how that works. And, um, but I think as people become comfortable it, as they learn the process, it's going to be great for the city. Uh, to the message, do you have a message to those who are independent that cannot vote in this primary, but you know, if, if you happen <laughs> to be, if, if they know people who are voting, what, what's your message to them as well? Yeah. Um, sorry. I'm, just had some water go down the wrong pipe here. Um, it's a good question. I mean, I think, um, you know, I am a believer that the city needs to make it easier for everybody to vote. Um, to have changed uh, party affiliations, you had to have done that by February 15th. Um, if you're unaffiliated, you could have registered as a Democrat by the 28th of May. Um, I think there's something like I, I don't know the exact numbers, but I think it's, it may be even be 48 out of 50 states have um, some version of, of something approaching open primaries, same day registration, or enabling people to register much closer to the primary as a party member. Uh, we need to do that. Um, you know, we need to make it easier for everybody to vote. We need to ensure that independents. Uh, independent voters and uh, Republicans are able to have a greater say because, you know, this Democratic primary will likely determine almost 99 percent certainty who the next leadership of the city will be. And I don't think that's particularly healthy. And so I think that we do need to move to a system where uh, we make voting in primaries uh, more accessible. Uh, one, I 100 percent agree there. I'm actually an independent and I just... I like it that way, even though it kind of excludes me. I'm still like, well, I guess there's another way I could do it through the podcast. So that, that's what we're doing here. Um, but being a Democrat now, you know, it's kind of interesting because some people in the city don't like the Democrat leadership. And so how do you stand out from sort of the party head, from the party leadership, and from the party that they seem to be, uh, that, that the impression of the party, if you will. How do you stand away, distance yourself from that impression? Yeah, you know, I look, I think people that are I sympathize with people who are um um uh, who have issues with either party. Um uh, what I would say is in terms of my candidacy, you know, I am somebody that really wants to focus on solving specific problems. And I think one of the interesting things when you're running in a city like New York, is you realize like is you know New Yorkers fundamentally agree on the problems that need to be solved. Right? There's no New Yorker that believes we should have worse schools or more crime or more homelessness or fewer jobs or worse public transportation. Right? Like New Yorkers fundamentally agree that these are problems that need to be solved. Um, 
And I am somebody that is wants to focus on how we solve specific problems as opposed to the politics. And I, I think that, you know, I would hope that that would make me a candidate that is appealing to all New Yorkers. Wow, that's uh, that's pretty powerful because, you know, I just I like the whole let's appeal to New Yorkers. We don't we don't hear that enough, to be very honest with you, or if we do, it doesn't seem as genuine as what you're saying here uh, now. Now, being I'm sorry, I might have asked you this earlier, but did you look at Stringer's performance or did you go into this thing about the office, not so much the predecessor of the office? Yeah, so I went into this sort of thinking a little bit about the possibilities of the office. That um, this was an office that really you have a team of 800 accountants, lawyers, engineers, whose job is to look under hood of the city and figure out what is and isn't working. And to me, as somebody who's focused on problem, problems, like that was really interesting. That was kind of exciting, like as sort of nerdy as that sounds, like being able to go and like say like, okay, you know, we want to solve homelessness. Like there's 55 cities that have ended veterans homelessness. There's another 15 that have ended homelessness. What's working in the city and what's not working? Okay, the shelter system isn't working because we're paying shelter providers based on the number of beds filled, not based on the number of people that gotten out of homelessness. But there's this home-based program that's been very effective at keeping people in their homes or getting people into jobs, um, right? And so really, like, dissecting these problems and finding what is and isn't working and then building the relationships around the city to invest in what's working and divest from what's not working. That to me is really interesting and exciting. And that's like a, what a great job that is. Sounds like a I puzzle think, you piece know, you got to uh, do, you know, sounds like you got to fit the pieces it is. here. Yeah. It's like, it's like, it's like, it's, it's exactly what it's like. It's like solving these, these really interesting, complicated problems, but that are solvable. And when I looked at, you know, and I think Stringer has done a, there's been some things he's done well, some things he has. And, you know, one of the big criticisms of Stringer is I think he's only every, I think like last year, he only found 30, $32 million in savings across the city on a 92, $93 billion budget. Um, but I think if you are not tying dollars to outcomes, if you're not really sort of looking at what the return on investment is, it's impossible to find savings. Right, like, how do you know what you're saving money on or what you're wasting money on if you're not actually able to identify what is and isn't working and how a dollar is actually solving the problem? And so I think that the whole approach is fundamentally broken with how we, we look at these things. You know, there's, there's, he's done a good job with some of his audits, um, uh, but I, I certainly don't think he's, uh, he's done um, enough to actually then get those audits to take the next step of actually getting things done. Um, and I think there's also another missed opportunity, which is showing the cost of not doing something as opposed to like, it's very easy to sort of say, okay, if we are going to, um, uh, you know, you can understand the cost of doing something, but often there's a cost of, of if you don't do it. And I think that when you understand the cost of not doing something or you understand what the return might be for doing it, it suddenly per puts those costs in, in perspective. Well, then I think one of the biggest tackles that you guys and the controller, the, the next controller will have to face is this mental health program. This what, NYC First? I think it's the mental health program. NYC which Thrive. Is, yeah, yeah, NYC Thrive. I mean, that's been a question since its existence. And how do we fix that? 
Yeah. So um, this is one of those things that, you know, I, I give the mayor and his wife credit for wanting to tackle mental health in the city. It is a major issue. It's the hidden pandemic. It's something that we're not paying enough attention to. It's something that it affects almost all areas of the city from the workforce to education to homelessness, public safety and crime. All of it is affected by mental health. And mental health is something that so many New Yorkers, including myself, have struggled with. And there was an opportunity to really create programs that help solve problems for New Yorkers, that help provide treatment, that scale the number of clinicians, that reduce the need for mental health services uh, through you know everything from better diets to access to the outdoors. And instead, I mean, there's this insane report that came out in the publication in the city a couple of weeks ago. Instead, we just found out that that one of these Thrive NYC centers, the city was spending $1.1 million per visit. $1.1 million per visit. At Headstrong, the nonprofit I ran, 85 cents of every dollar went directly to care. And and I knew it cost $5,000 to treat a veteran over six months. $5,000 for six months of care versus $1.1 million per visit with no actual outcomes or measurements um, for the impact that the city spending was having. That is just it's, I mean, it's, insane. It's, it's insane. That is just yeah. nuts. And I mean, you don't have to comment on this, but the the, the whole idea of them maybe losing seven billion, you know, seven billion, eight billion. I mean, that's a storyline of itself. And do, do you know if we recover that, or what, is there going to be an update with the new controller on that whole situation of where that money so, went? So those dollars are those dollars are spent, <laughs> but um, I think that there is a uh, you know I have committed, um, and on the debate stage, I got some of the other candidates to commit to making sure we audit uh, Thrive NYC and do a real assessment of where those dollars went. That is that is a huge statement. I don't know how many people have been catching that, but but that commitment is huge in my view anyway. So thank yeah. you for committing to that. that. That's good. And any gotcha moments? Like if someone were to ask you like it's a private question, let, let's get that out of the way here. So any gotcha things that people that may be asked of you like have you gotten any gotcha questions yet or anything that could be questionable like just, just wanted to ask you that one um it's a good question i definitely i mean look you get asked questions all the time on the campaign trail that you don't know the answer to and you know part of that is like we live in a very big city um with a lot of issues and um for me those have always been learning moments Right, because um, you know, sorry, my son is just coming into the room. I will be right out to help you guys with dinner. Okay, I'll be right out to help you guys with dinner. All right, be careful of your fingers. Be careful of your fingers. Sorry. And this will be all in the in. this is all in the podcast. I'm keeping this because you know this is this is this is what I life on it. the trail is like, is it not? It, this is exactly what it's like, especially in this day and age. But the look, you know the. Um, I think when I have gotten a gotcha question, um, it's been an, it's always been a learning opportunity, right? There's, it's always been an opportunity because generally when people are asking you a question, um, sometimes they have a better sense of the problem. Often they have a better sense of the problem. Often they have ideas for what the potential solution would be. And it's, it's just, it's a great moment to learn something new. Um, and, 
um, I'm trying to think of some specific examples of that, but they, they escape me right now. But I found that those are usually really great learning moments. Well, especially because if you're a nonprofit leader, they often say, well, how did you get all the funding? How'd you, like, so I'm sure those questions come up a lot too. <laughs> yeah, I haven't been asked about Headstrong funding. I mean, that was all, you know, uh, private philanthropy. We had some funding from state uh, corporate philanthropy um, from different states. I don't think we ever, when I, I stepped off the board, uh, when I uh, filed my paperwork to run, so there was no conflicts uh, during my time running. But I think that they, um, we started to work on ways of possibly getting reimbursements from the federal government, but we're, we're not there yet. Well, that's, that's good. Obviously, I feel like some people don't step down from the board when they start running, and I'm glad that you took that step to do so. So kudos to you on that. All right, Zach Isco, you're sitting here as comptroller candidate. You are a viable candidate. You have gotten fundraising. Kid from New York, did you ever see it? Did you ever see that you could possibly be in this position to run for a city office? Um, I always knew that I wanted to. Um, uh, being a public servant has always you know, there's a saying, a man can't live off of bread alone, right? It, service is, is fundamental to who I am. Like it's, I, I couldn't get out of bed in the morning if I was just making money or doing something that wasn't helping people. Um, running for city office. Uh, I no, I think it's, it's sort of, um, it's it's significant, you know, running for a citywide office in a city as big as New York City. Um, and it definitely, there's a lot of conversations between me and my wife and our family um, over the last year. But I think, you know, it, it became very obvious to me over this last year, um, especially after my time at Javits, that um, the city needs better leadership. And so it made the decision pretty clear. And we were both around Mayor de Blasio at Memorial Day. So what what was your thoughts seeing him up there? Like, did it, well, I don't know if you want to react yeah. to that, but it was interesting to see him up there and, and, you know, be in his presence amidst this time right now. You know, I think, um, yeah, look, I, I think, I think de Blasio, Mayor de Blasio is a, um, you know, I think he's a very personable, nice guy. Um, I don't think he was the leader that the city needed in this moment. I think that he is a a summer mayor, not a winter mayor. And um, well, we need an all seasons city, mayor. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we need an all seasons mayor. But I think we had a mayor who, um, when things got very very tough over last over the last year the city's leadership seemed to kind of evaporate uh, and they, they uh, um, were not leading us uh, the way we needed to be led to some of these very difficult moments. And I think, unfortunately, while we are making our way through this pandemic, while people are vaccinated, while the city is opening up, um, there are some very real structural issues within the city that, uh, this administration is leaving us with the $15 billion deficit over the first three years, some other very significant issues uh, with city government um, that are going to make the next few years potentially very, very painful for the city. 
And Zach, I, I think that's why we need someone like you at the controller helm. So how do we get in touch with you? How do we donate? How do we support? What's the website? Give us everything. Yeah. So um, big thing right now is is getting out the vote. Um, you know, we early voting started today. Uh, last day to vote is June 22nd. Um, if you want to volunteer or support the campaign, <laughs> you can uh, find us at ZachIskel.com or Zach, Z-A-C-H, NYC. Zach Iskell is Z-A-C-H-I-S-C-O-L.com. So either one takes you to the same place, Zach.NYC, Z-A-C-H.NYC, or ZachIskell.com. Um, and uh, we'd love for people to sign up, help us phone bank, help us text bank, uh, tell your friends. Most important thing is also getting out there and voting. Um, and, uh, you know, Vote for Zach Iskell on the second line on the comptroller ballot. Uh, but that is the the big thing we're focused on over the next 10 days. Now, is there a chance your name could be on the ballot in November? Just even if the primary doesn't go, can you be on the ballot in November? Is that how ranked choice is going, or do you not know that format? Uh, there's ways, but if, if I don't win the primary, I think it's I think that is uh, very, very unlikely unless something extraordinarily, extraordinary happened, right? Unless there was a significant case of something of, a, of, of something illegal happening or fraud or corruption, um, you know, short of anything like that happening. I, I don't see me being on the ballot in November if I don't win the primary. Well, let's, let's get you over the finish line. And, and that is my endorsement. I want Zach yeah. to do it. I, I've listened to him. I've listened to all the candidates and partly I'm jaded against the establishment and I want the, the under, you know, the guy on the outside to win. And I, I that, and you got a lot going for you, Zach. So, and you're a true New Yorker. I love that about you too. So there's there's a lot we'll of factors. You out. Why Zach this matters. is an endorsement that means a tremendous amount to me. So thank you. I am humbled by it. I'm so so glad that we got to meet, and uh, I can't wait to catch up with you again in person soon. I hope we can do that very soon. One hundred percent. You know, just fate that brought us together. I feel so. Thank you for spending time with me today on my podcast. Awesome. Thank you, Alex, and uh, have a great day. And Get out to vote, everybody. Amen to that. I'm Alex Garrett, where, as you know, we're always adapting, and we're going to tell you you should vote. Vote between now and the 22nd to get Zach and the Comptroller on the ballot in November.